This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. That experience, the insight came to me that in many of these circumstances, we have tremendous hope that a treatment would come up, but unfortunately lack the capital to be able to actually advance that treatment into patients. And so the insight was that the problem, especially in diseases uh, like rare diseases and other overlooked diseases, the problem is not finding a potential cure, it's funding it. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we have a very special guest today, Alok um, Tai. Uh, he is the co-founder of Vibe Bio, uh, which I have the pleasure of being an investor in. Uh, so there will be some bias, but I want to make this episode, um, you know, also dig deep into what we call applying a lot of the incentives in crypto um, that we've seen historically with Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and, and applying those to, to healthcare in one of the areas that I feel really passionately about, which is, uh, and I've, as a side, you know, I love crypto, but I also love healthcare and biotech. And there's a lot of problems there that I think can be addressed with uh, better incentive models and mechanisms that we've explored in crypto. Um, so this would be a fascinating, I think, a fascinating deep dive. I hope that Alok uh, not only will give you a, an overview of what they're doing in Bio, which combines a lot of really interesting features uh, of Web3 and crypto, but also just really dig deep into what are the problems in, in, in research and development, drug development uh, and discovery. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, I think uh, we will get a better understanding of, of what the potential really is to, to fix healthcare. Um, and, and I think it's one of the more promising areas. And if this truly works, I mean, I think there's a lot of criticisms out there in the space. You know, a lot of this is just ponzonomics and yield farming and, and we're really going and if Bitcoin's really going to work. But I think, um, you know, this is one of the areas where if it works, then it could really transform healthcare. It feels real to a lot of us. Um, you know, we all have family members or know of people that have um, unfortunately, you know, struggled from rare diseases, which is one of the topics we're going to talk about here. And, and you're going to learn why that area in particular has been largely neglected by Big Pharma. And so without further ado, uh, Alok, welcome to the pod. We're thrilled to have you. Um, uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much. Really a uh, pleasure to be here. And I'm grateful for uh, your time and the opportunity to be able to share a little bit about Vibe as well as what we're doing at the intersection of crypto and the biotech industry. Awesome. And so congrats on officially launching uh, Vibe Bio. was round yesterday. It was a $12 million round uh, with some really good investors. So first off, maybe tell us a little bit about that and then um, the idea behind starting this, perhaps layering in your background into that. Yeah, 100%. Um, so yeah, appreciate the the kind words. And so uh, yeah, we were really excited. Uh, Vibe announced its um, first round of financing la uh, earlier this week. Um, we're uh, thrilled to be able to raise $12 million um, led by initialized capital. Uh, have a, a whole host of amazing investors, including yourself, uh, Naval, Abology, um, Diego Ray, um, Lira Hippo, amongst a, a suite of other uh, great investors. Um, and you know, the big part about that announcement was in addition to being able to raise that capital, we also announced two partnerships, uh, one with um, a patient advocacy group called Chelsea's Hope, the other called uh, NF2 Biosolutions, to launch our first two drug programs in diseases, uh, specifically Lafora disease and uh, NF2. So we're really excited to be able to sort of come out of the gate and sort of tell our story and also um, share some of the great work we're doing um, with real folks to help bring crypto into the biotech industry. And so um, happy to give you a little bit of insight into my background and sort of what uh, the genesis of Vibe was, if that helps. Yeah, absolutely. Let's lay, lay the uh, kind of a context for folks. Uh, how do you, what is your background, and then and what exactly is Vibe Bio? For sure. So uh, 
I'm actually a scientist by trade and training. I spent about 15 years at the bench doing research uh, and then caught the software bug and started a couple software companies focused on the life sciences industry. Uh, and then mid last year, uh, my wife and I were fortunate enough to uh, have our first kid, though the pregnancy went okay. Uh, unfortunately, our daughter was born very sick uh, and spent a long time in the hospital suffering. One of the hardest parts about that experience was the fact that though the diseases that she had were somewhat common and the biology were well understood, there were actually no dedicated therapeutic options available to her. And as a consequence, she spent a long time in the hospital. You know, as a family, we felt extremely frustrated, abandoned, and alone uh, during that period. But inevitably, when you spend time in the NICU, you actually start meeting a lot of other families who also have sick loved ones um, along your bedside. And we started to realize uh, more and more that a lot of the common challenges and struggles we had around having uh, a child who had an illness that we understood, but I know therapeutic options, actually ended up becoming a common thread that tied us all together as a group. And so it was from that experience, the insight came to me that in many of these circumstances, we have tremendous hope that a treatment would come up, but unfortunately lack the capital to be able to actually advance that treatment into patients. And so the insight was that the problem, especially in diseases uh, like rare diseases and other overlooked diseases, the problem is not finding a potential cure, it's funding it. And so it was that kernel that led me to start Vibe Bio last year with my co-founder, uh, the inimitable Josh Foreman. So Josh and I started Vibe Bio to be able to help bring a new approach to developing treatments, initially focused on rare diseases. And Vibe Bio is a community of patients, scientists, and partners that help identify and vet potential treatments initially on rare diseases, and then fund them using cryptocurrency token sales. And so when you juxtapose how families today um, try and tackle this problem, you know, the president and founder of NF2 Biosolutions, for instance, um, had to run multiple 5Ks just to be able to raise enough money to advance treatments for um, that neuro-oncology indication. And so today, for the one in 10 Americans who suffer from a rare disease, you know, we hope to be able to develop a new approach by which we can actually put the patient in the driver's seat not profit or politics when it comes to drug development. That's fascinating. And so um, maybe uh, for a skeptic out there, they might say, wait a minute, well, there's a lot of VCs out there that are investing in biotech. Um, and what is their role and why have they not jumped into the opportunity that you're seeing here? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important to keep in mind here that uh, there's no explicit sort of villain or um uh, you know, anyone with ill intent, usually, I think uh, those are sort of rooted out pretty quickly in the biotech industry. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the context of how biotech companies operate, especially when you're a VC backed, first off, over the past 20 to 30 years, a lot of the exciting innovation in the life sciences industry has shifted from bigger pharma companies to a decentralized network of emerging biotech companies. Now, when you're an emerging biotech company, however, even if you're VC backed, you'll always have capacity and resource constraints uh, when it comes to developing your technology into a working medicine. So what ends up happening is that any rational leader or uh, manager will have to start to prioritize where they allocate their limited capacity and their novel technology. And so naturally what ends up happening is they prioritize the largest disease areas, which also represent the largest economic opportunities and therefore increase the overall NPV of their organization. That focus on just one to two disease areas requires them then to deprioritize the next dozen. And that decision, 
when integrated across the few thousand biotechs that are out there, lead to, unfortunately, herd mentality. So you have the entire industry focusing on a modest to small subset of diseases, while the balance, like rare diseases and other overlooked domains, though they have good economic opportunities and have tractable science, um, unfortunately don't get as much love. And so uh, I think this is a facet of how the life sciences industry operates that um, just unfortunately leads to a measurable amount of diseases being overlooked. Now, if it was any other industry, we'd be okay with that because it just means that, you know, if I'm building Salesforce and Salesforce can't be applied to the construction industry, then, you know, the construction industry would just be a little bit less efficient per se. But in this segment and domain, it reflects in the fact that um, unfortunately, people suffer and in many cases uh, die as well. And so it was from that uh, certain context where there's you know, $40, $50 billion a year invested in biotech venture in a given year, very small portion of it sort of early stage um, innovation and venture that motivates us to think about creating a new approach when it comes to the biotech side of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that one in 10 actually has uh, a rare disease in America, at least. Um, of course, this is scattered across a number of rare diseases, um, and it's not, which, which I think is part of the problem here, which is uh, it takes what up to, you know, north of a billion, up to two billion to develop a drug. And the probability of developing a drug is sort of you applied like this sort of decision tree model um, is quite low. And so in that context, maybe elaborate more on how Vibe Bio, in what particular um, area are you most focused on? Um, and how do you kind of, I mean, you've raised 12 million, that's not 12, a billion. And so um, how, uh, maybe explain to listeners how this will actually work. What, what are the areas that you're mostly focused on um, in the drug development kind of R&D phase? For sure. You know, if it's all right, I'd love to just take maybe one quick step back and put you in the shoes of a family who's just been told their child's been diagnosed with a rare disease and sort of give you a sense of kind of how they approach it today and then sort of how BiBio um, dovetails. So, Please. you know, if you're a, a family member of a patient who's just diagnosed by a rare disease, the doctor informs you that though we understand the disease, that there are no treatments, I'm sure you can appreciate it's a very emotional and difficult time. Obviously, the first instinct is to go and try and beg biotech and pharma companies to work on your disease area. But as we discussed, that often doesn't lead to much. And so the result for many of these families is basically, on one hand, billionaires and their generosity, or bake sales and the volume, on the other hand. And so many of these groups for which there's uh, now, according to a recent report from RareX, over 10,000 different rare diseases, um, a clear um, you know, challenge where, you know, unfortunately we believe there needs to be a better option uh, that's different than billionaires and bake sales. And so that's the context within which we're trying to come into the, into, the, into the fold. So in terms of the approach, you know, one of the few things I'd like to highlight here around rare diseases specifically is the fact that though the patient population is somewhat smaller, you'll also, also see a substantially lower cost to actually be able to develop and advance the therapy in this space. So First, when it comes to uh, you know, these smaller to modest-sized uh, disease areas in terms of patient population, you end up actually needing maybe only a few million dollars or maybe 10 or $15 million to actually get a medicine through some of the more difficult stages of drug development, as opposed to the hundreds of millions of dollars required in some larger disease areas like, say, cardiovascular disease or cancer. So I think that's one really critical takeaway here is that in addition, even though the um, patient population is smaller, the costs to actually develop a medicine are lower. 
Further, when you actually look at the um, costs on the health system, there is a tremendous amount applied uh, because of these rare diseases because they also have no existing treatment today. So there's, I think, a unique opportunity for us to be able to bring these medicines to market quickly uh, in comparison to the current system. So, you know, in terms of Vibe Bio, the approach that we take is we think that every patient that has a life-altering disease, no matter how rare, deserves to be part of a community and have the power to pursue a cure. So what we do is we're building this community of patients, scientists, and partners that help identify, vet, and then fund these different drug development programs in innovative ways. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going on actively partnering with patient advocacy groups that currently are focused on a given disease area. Mm -hmm. Using uh, their know-how and their insight into the disease, the science, the scientific leaders, the medical KOLs, et cetera, many of these groups are now putting forth proposals to the DAO that structure a specific, the study of a specific potential medicine for their disease. And so the goal here is for, to empower these patient communities, those who truly understand the disease and have the most incentive to see it solved, put forth a proposal around running a clinical trial, doing preclinical testing, manufacturing, et cetera, to help advance and develop that medicine. Once that proposal comes to the DAO, the DAO has a community of scientific experts and drug development um, uh, veterans who help evaluate and stack rank those proposals based on scientific merit, um, clinical uh, facets, safety, regulatory, et cetera. And then we subsequently empower the community to then approve funding for those ranked proposals. So we leverage the token, the VIBE token, which is our governance token, to be able to raise some capital through external investors, as we just alluded to, but also grant those tokens to those community members such that the patients can truly be in the driver's seat of setting prioritize, uh, priorities and allocating that capital. So that's sort of the overall mechanics of kind of how Vibe works today. And to answer your other question in terms of drug development longer term, you know, I think very much so there's a lot of capital that's required to develop a suite of diseases, uh, to develop a suite of medicines. But I think even, again, there's a few million dollars to be able to advance a medicine to show that it works in a human, for instance, allows us to make tremendous progress and then potentially partner that medicine with an existing institution or raise more uh, follow-on capital from traditional sources as well. And so that's, I think, a big part of our model, which is to say, we want to plug in neatly into the existing regulatory and drug development infrastructure, but ensure that actually the patient is at the center as opposed to profit or politics. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so just, um, I guess, historically, for my curiosity, just the listeners, how much of, of the existing treatments uh, for rare diseases, neglected diseases has happened in this, in this manner, meaning advocacy groups uh, of people that are affected by it? Um, actually put forth uh, some modalities or some like interesting research and then that gets picked up by big pharma. Um, like, is that the norm or, 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 or is this kind of a pioneering model that you're, you're developing? It's an awesome question. And to be candid, you know, we're drawing a lot of inspiration from how other communities have actually started to develop medicines for the disease that they've cared about over the past half century. For example, the vaccine for polio, the treatments for cystic fibrosis, forms of hypertension, Pompeys, et cetera, were actually potent therapeutics that were pioneered by communities that came together when existing centralized institutions were focused elsewhere. They formed a charity, a community, and then raised capital, at least philanthropically, to be able to invest in these drug development programs. 
So I think the most canonical example is the work that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has done over the past you know, 30 or 40 years to develop treatments for CF. The interesting thing about this is also, I think, highlighting the unique insight that communities and patients themselves have. When CF uh, sort of first became a, a really uh, well-known disease, despite its size, there were only 20 or 30,000 patients known in the United States and globally. But as the Sensitive Fibrosis Foundation started to assemble their community, identify potential patients, and raise hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in drug development, they were actually now finding that there's actually more than like a quarter million patients that suffer from cystic fibrosis. There's this natural growth that ends up happening once there's awareness and also once there's a therapeutic. So in the case of CF, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation invested in a company called Aurora Biosciences, which was then acquired and today is actually Vertex Pharmaceuticals, which is a $60 billion plus market cap company that does about $4 billion in top line, all from the cystic fibrosis medicines that they've developed. So many of which were actually invested and developed uh, and funded by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. So when you look at the work that they've done, the March of Dimes in terms of developing the vaccine for polio, Martin Rothblatt, who was actually the founder of uh, SiriusXM, who then started United uh, Bi Therapeutics, John Crowley, who started Novozyme, as well as now Amicus Therapeutics um, to treat his children with Pompeys. You see this common trend where, again, when communities come together and patients have a high-end medical need, legacy institutions are focused elsewhere. These communities become powerful sources of identifying the science and uh, the capital to be able to push them forward. We just hope to be able to learn from that uh, success and put that model on steroids. Yeah, absolutely. And just, uh, again, this is not a criticism, but when you say most big pharma is kind of focused on developing another treatment for erectile dysfunction or whatever, which, you know, is a problem, but on the grand scheme of things, we don't need another Viagra in the market. We need uh, dollar, more dollars to go fund rare diseases. I mean, is that like a fair statement? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I'll be maybe a little bit, uh, I'll massage the statement <laughs> a little bit if it's okay with you. Uh, what I'd say is that, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of a pharmaceutical company that has an obligation to shareholders in terms of returning, uh, uh, delivering a return on investment, they have to make very calculated decisions that focus them on specific disease areas, which will have a high uh, economic return, but also have lower uh, like lower risk in terms of their development. And so that's one of the other challenges in this space. It's like a bit of a catch-22, which is for existing disease areas that we know about that have large market opportunities and a well-established clinical and regulatory pathway, it makes a lot of sense for new technologies to be applied there and pharma to focus. But the challenge with rare disease, as we just discussed, is that there are no existing treatments today. And as a consequence, when there's no existing treatment, it's also unclear what the bar is that you need to cross in terms of getting a medicine potentially approved and accepted by the community. So there's also this component of risk that also I think gets factored into the prioritization for many of these institutions. And I think it's safe to say that the current drug development infrastructure just wasn't built to focus on rare diseases specifically. So our hope at VibeBio is to build a community of patients, scientists, and partners to help identify and vet potential treatments for rare diseases and fund them in innovative ways, such that we can scalably and sustainably pursue treatments for rare diseases using the Dow model at its, at its core. What has been the reception of the scientific community? Uh, the scientists maybe comment on who's actually involved, who's doing the vetting, um, and, and what's been the reception uh, of, of a lot of these researchers and scientists to, to your model? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So what I'll say is that this has been one of the most um, yeah, the easiest projects I've ever had to work on and build because such a large portion of the industry, despite what's talked about in the press, I think truly cares about the patient and also wanting to work on programs and projects that will have a shot on goal. And I think in many cases, even inside an innovative biotech, it takes many years and tens to hundreds of millions of dollars to even get to the point where you're starting a clinical trial. In our case, we can actually move at a much faster pace because we're partnering with patients directly and are able to also bring in existing um, intellectual property and medicines that are um, closer to that point. So the, the reception has been extraordinarily wonderful. Can't mention any names at the moment. You know, we'll be doing some additional discussion on that uh, soon, but we've got folks who have brought multiple drugs to market, including drugs like Spinraza, uh, have participated in, in uh, bringing Brunura to market as well. And these are hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars uh, of medicines uh, that have been developed by these individuals um, bring coming to the forefront. We're also actively building a scientific advisory board that has some of the most leading experts in neurology and our Nobel laureates, et cetera, the table. Mm -hmm. And I think what motivates every single one of these individuals, again, is the opportunity to be proximal to the patient, the opportunity to now bring their know-how and expertise to the table to be able to advance a candidate medicine that truly can not only get into the clinic, but then has a clear line of sight to approval and at the end of the day, have an impact. Um, I think the other piece of this is there's also a lot of intrigue and curiosity around how this broader business model and this domain of Web3 and community ownership could disrupt and transform. We've got some really um, innovative and uh, you know, wonderful individuals who have been part of some of the most canonical biotechs here in Boston, for instance, uh, Millennium Pharma, Infinity, um, Decibel, uh, uh, Thrive Earlier Detection, et cetera that are actually also part of some very prominent biotech VC firms who are uh, participating in this process because they see an opportunity by which this broad swath of disease we can actually potentially pursue. So, you know, I think the, the, the uptake has been great. The participation has been huge. And I think it's uh, only going to get amplified from here, especially as we announce some of our subsequent partnerships with pharma and, and academia in the coming months. I'm trying to understand why historically no one has kind of like thought about this or done it in the way that you're doing it? Is it, is it just something inherently unique about the DAO model, the coordination that crypto allows in a very scalable kind of like internet native way? Um, perhaps like, let's dig deep into that. Yeah. So let me give you maybe just a couple quick thoughts. Love to hear, you know, if that sort of resonates with you. I think the first part about it is that biotech companies and VC firms often have what they call patient advocacy groups which are sort of the liaisons beside, beyond, uh, between the organization, the biotech, and a patient advocacy group. Um, however, I think the key gap ends up being is that the patient advocacy groups and the patients themselves don't necessarily have economics or governance right, in terms of deciding priorities. That's usually done by the biotechs and the management team. So it ends up becoming a circumstance where they, you know, uh, when tough decisions have to be made, programs are then cut and drug programs are, are put on the shelf, which unfortunately um, is to the negative uh, implications for the patients. And I think a part of it also is giving up economics then decreases the economics for other folks at the table, especially those who are taking the financial risk. So I think there's some aspect there around the uh, capital, the financial incentives, as well as how decisions are made that I think um, make our model and approach different 
but also difficult for existing institutions to sort of adopt. So the approach that we've been taking has been to bring the community together in a DAO, as you alluded, leverage the token as a way to incent and provide governance and a say, an agency for these patients. But then once a drug program is actually approved, the actual funds from the DAO then actually go into a dedicated C-Corp biotech that has economic ownership from the DAO, as well as these patient advocacy groups. And we believe that to be really critical because when you also give them skin in the game and ensure that they can see part of the upside in that um, drug program, it then ensures that they're, they're committed with you, whether it's finding the scientists, working with regulatory authorities, which is super important, as well as even finding patients to enroll in a trial. So I think our innovation, both in terms of how we make decisions, but also the economic structure, I think are, are facets that are highly differentiated and just sort of go against the grain in terms of the current incentive structure in the industry. Yeah. How do you, um, so, so, so you've raised this capital, um, you have maybe 10 different hundreds of or thousands of rare diseases. How do you prioritize this? For sure. Well, you know, I think the, the key part of, you know, Web3 is to ensure that it's done in a decentralized community driven way. So, uh, when, I, when, I say we or uh, I, I really mean the DAO as a whole as opposed to myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the approach that we take here is that I think there's this healthy tension that we have to keep. I think anyone out there who's going to be part of the Vibio community is going to want to see every drug have a shot on goal and every disease have potential to be um, treated. But at the end of the day, we need to be ensuring that the capital we're allocating is going towards programs that have the highest potential and the highest patient impact also such that if it's successful, we can return capital back to continue reinvesting into new programs. And so that tension is between the humanity and the altruism that the Vibio community has, but also ensuring that we're meeting certain scientific, regulatory, and safety um, uh, expectations. Mm -hmm. So the approach that we take is to empower communities with tokens, patient communities specifically, um, enable any token holder to put forth a proposal around advancing candidate medicine into a clinical trial. Um, you know, whether it be say the manufacturing aspect or the clinical trial itself or preclinical testing, but then ensure that after those proposals are provided to the DAO, that we have a team of experts who are sort of reviewing them and ranking them. So what we do is we evaluate things like, you know, the regulatory pathway, the clinical development plan, the manufacturability, even the financial plan related to the capital that's being requested. You know, if they're asking for 10 grand to do a 10,000 person clinical trial, there's probably a mismatch there. And so we have deep domain experts whose responsibility isn't necessarily to say yes or no, but instead to render their expertise, just they would in any other drug development circumstance, to ensure that proposal is properly structured and also vetted for being the best possible chance um, for a medicine to, to get to market into patients. So we think that diligence step is really critical. And then once that diligence step is complete, they'll have ranked and create a stack essentially of those final proposals with the highest potential, highest impact uh, programs at the top, um, and then cascading from there such that whatever funds are approved or available can then be um, allocated sort of top down as a consequence. So it becomes a community-driven approach that allows experts to help weigh in to ensure we're making good decisions, but then empowers then experts on the back end once the community approves to be able to um, 
do the drug development work on a day-to-day basis. So I'm an investor. Uh, I get tokens, uh, but I have no domain expertise. As much as I love this, I'm not the most competent person to vote on on the merits of these proposals. Um, how do you plan on creating a sufficiently decentralized community whereby do I delegate my vote to a particular expert in neurology or uh, some other field? Um, and, and what's the incentive for these scientists and researchers to uh, participate? Um, are you granting them tokens? Are they investors? Are they buying these tokens? Or I'm just kind of curious how you, because a lot of what we've seen in, in these DAOs, you know, uh, is, is a high degree of concentration. And oftentimes yeah. a lot of these people are voting with their feet if they are even showing up. And so like participation is pretty low. In this case, there's a lot of motivated people, but may not be, may not have the expertise to, to and qualifications to vote on, on the merits of these proposals. Yeah, I think you hit uh, a really important point there. Uh, and I'd say when it comes to uh, how we try to engage with a broader uh, pool of participants, delegation, I think, is a really critical uh, facet of that. In terms of just patient advocacy groups alone in the United States, there's tens of thousands of them. Globally, it's uh, many multiples of that. And so it empowers, um, and in the life sciences industry across the globe, there's something like 13 million people who participate in the life sciences industry today. Mm-hmm. So as we try and build the largest collective of patients, scientists, and partners, I think there's an opportunity for folks like yourselves and other token holders to be able to delegate their vote to those tens of thousands of patient communities, millions of sort of scientists as well in the ecosystem to help ensure that they're bringing their uh, insights to the table as well. But regardless, even from a delegation perspective, because we've structured it such that, you know, token holders can propose, but we have experts vet, we're still fairly confident that we'll be hopefully making good decisions on the back end. But, you know, I think uh, it's safe to say that DAO retention and engagement is still an open question in the industry. But I hope, as you mentioned, that the commitment and the conviction and the fact that this topic hits close to home to so many keeps people engaged on an ongoing basis. Uh, the other thing I'll just quickly add is that, you know, when Josh and I think through the mechanics and the governance scheme here, I think also ensuring that we're focusing people's time and focus on specific time points when these proposals are supposed to be submitted, reviewed, and then approved, I think also helps focus people as opposed to having this continuous stream of decision-making. Mm-hmm. And so the scientists that we work with are paid through tokens um, such that they're also incented for the long-term. Um, and can carry some of the upside that comes with the community being successful as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone, really excited to share a special update from our friends at Paraswap. Paraswap has been pushing the boundaries of what is possible with DeFi for years, and they just did it again. They just rolled out the first ever NFT peer-to-peer mobile trading app on iOS. That's right, they launched an iOS app for peer-to-peer NFT trading. You can buy and sell NFTs with any token. They have a secure non-custodial wallet. Uh, You've got a fiat on-ramp with zero fees at all. That's all at paraswap.io forward slash beta, paraswap.io forward slash beta. It's a peer-to-peer NFT trading app on Apple. Pretty crazy thing in the iOS ecosystem. Imagine not using a platform that could literally save you thousands on gas that's Paraswap. Go check out the app. Go check out the native wallet to store all of your crypto assets in one place. Go get your gas refunded. Go check them out. Go download the new Paraswap NFT trading app, paraswap.io forward slash beta, paraswap.io forward slash beta. Now let's get back to the show. 
it sounds like it's an easy sell to these communities, some of which are just being neglected and or reliant on, you know, very generous individuals that, you know, can work at times, but it's not a very sustainable model. Um, I want to ask you, is this an adverse selection problem? Meaning the the potential, like the more promising treatments or, you know, that are showing traction or diseases that are farther along and have more line of sight and being approved are probably getting picked up by very reputable VCs um, and or pharma companies, biotech companies. And then you're kind of left with this important but tail end of kind of more neglected, less clear diseases. Very important, don't get me wrong, but still the probabilities of that are, are much lower. Um, I'm curious if you believe that to be true of this adverse selection problem that you're going to be facing. Yeah, you know, it's a really important question. I think it was one of the, the common ones we uh, faced when it came to uh, our fundraise. And actually, I'd love to dispel that notion sort of fairly swiftly because first, the rare disease space actually has a higher rate of approval than uh, larger indication areas. And so I think it's something like almost like twice as many um, that sort of enter the clinic um, actually end up getting approved in comparison to sort of other uh, domains. So that's like one important facet. Second, I'd also I, I guess on that, that point, be, be, before yeah, we go please. any further, is, it, is this because the FDA has sort of these emergency status um, kind of incentives to, to kind of approve these or it has more leniency towards approving more of these exploratory treatments? Um, it's a really good question. I would actually argue it's that right now there is no treatment available today. And so your bar is different. Your, your bar mm -hmm. is unfortunately people dying or having like real uh, serious symptoms and, and uh, poor quality of life. So I think when it's so egregious in terms of the current outcome uh, with rare diseases, that any medicine that's able to incrementally improve quality of life, kind of lifespan. Yeah. The, it's, the, it's like ALS treatment, the ALS treatment out there by this Japanese pharma, like is not like doing much other than prolonging life by like two or three months. Uh, Cause the lungs is what fails first. Right. And so I, I remember looking at this stuff and it's like, it's not that it's curing the disease. It's just that it's marginally improving the condition of a patient. And so it gets approved much faster perhaps than a cardiovascular um, kind of more, you know, treatment yeah. or cancer treatment. Right. Is that, is that accurate? I, th I think that's like one good, one way to think about it, which is, yeah, again, uh, anything we can do to improve the quality of life as well as the lifespan of folks with rare diseases tends to get a good look, I think, from the FDA because there are also no treatments today. And as a consequence, I think the patient communities are very vocal and engaged with the regulatory authorities to ensure that they're giving a fair shake right, to those sort of uh, candidate medicines. So that's one thing to think about. Um, so the, the other piece that I'd also highlight here in tandem is that uh, when it comes to uh, the current drug development process, you actually alluded to at the beginning of, this, of the discussion, which is it takes a billion or $2 billion actually to bring a, a given medicine to market in the aggregate. So I'd actually <laughs> push back on the concept of adverse selection in that I think our current infrastructure spends a fair amount of capital today um, for a lot of medicines that unfortunately don't uh, pass muster. And so I think our approach of being very, very focused on a specific set of indications in a specific space where first we can start to develop intuition and instinct across the DAO to evaluate and vet these programs. That's where we're bringing experts who've worked on drugs like Spinraza and Brunura to the table. 
But then second, over time, you can envision that the DAO can start to build up a shared service model that actually starts to decrease the costs and improve insights across the multiple programs that we step up. You know, best practice on which vendor should we be working with? What's the right way to manage all the data coming from a clinical trial? How do we think about patient recruitment? Um, how do we think about staffing even, right? And motivating these teams. I think there's another piece of this, which DAOs are also uniquely uh, positioned to do, which is to bring best practices, bring the right talent to the table, help them coordinate, give them a little bit of capital, and then sort of see what they can do. So, you know, I, I can appreciate sort of what the broader industry kind of thinks about this space, but I just push back on um, that sort of assumption because, you know, I think our, the current process is definitely inefficient. Everyone knows it's got to improve. I think the rare disease space actually has shown statistically has a higher um, uh, likelihood of approval compared to other disease areas. And then also we have an opportunity to learn collectively and grow and decrease the costs over time, improve the conversion over time as the DAO starts to build up a collective knowledge base. Yeah. I mean, it certainly rings true, like open sourcing a lot of this stuff. There might be a lot of clinical trial data that has been shelved and is not available. So over time, over the next five, 10 years, you would envision that you're collecting a lot of this and open sourcing it to advanced science as opposed to mm -hmm. the, you know, which is not at odds with making a financial return. I mean, at some point, I think you've been very clear here, which is there is a profit motive here, like patient, but everyone kind of wins more equitably. The patients, the DAO, you know, investors, uh, maybe service providers that are being paid in tokens, mm -hmm. not necessarily in cash or what have you. So, so that certainly kind of rings true. I guess I want to um, shift a little bit of my attention into kind of what is the grand vision here? Like, what, where do you see Vibio in the next five, 10 years? Like, do you think that you will get um, biotech investors, VCs, pharma into the fold, research institutions? You know, a lot of this, my understanding, is happens initially in universities. Um, and so what are your plans on building this community? Because right now it seems like there's a few experts, it's us investors, but also um, you know, patients uh, uh, and patient populations. But I'm curious, like, what are your plans over the next 12, 24 months? Um, and where do you see kind of bio, bio evolving? Yeah, well, you know, I think our goal in the near term is to get, uh, is to open up our community and welcome as many patients, scientists, and partners to the table. Um, I think our also our goal also and uh, during that period of time is also to launch uh, our token such that we can have uh, you know on chain governance and participation from a broader group of people. But I think in terms of building out the community, we'd love to work with every patient advocacy group and every biotech company out there that has a disease uh, area that they're passionate about, a high potential drug program that sort of has tremendous promise, but just lacks the capital and the capacity to be able to advance into these later stages of development to give patients hope and show the promise. You know, I think that's really the core of where we're focused. And I think you're gonna see over the next couple months, some of the traction we're getting with pharma companies, academic institutions to help take that technology, which would have unfortunately sat on a shelf somewhere, now actually give it a shot on goal and, and get it into people. So I think that's gonna be the two key milestones for us. But then longer term, I really hope over the next, you know, let's call it two, five, 10 years to be able to then start to think about a broader vision for how Vibe evolves. I'll give you one Web3 sort of vector and then sort of one biotech vector, which is in the case of Web3, you know, one of the amazing things and powerful facets of, of DAOs and crypto is that everything we do from a governance perspective or from a, um, a token standpoint is all instantiated in code. 
So even though we're focused on rare diseases today for a variety of reasons, both my personal experience and exposure, but then also in terms of the, the capital required to move the needle, you can envision taking that same governance structure approach and model and then it re, uh, replicating it for other high priority disease areas that are overlooked. You mentioned ALS, infectious disease, mental health, addiction, women's health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It becomes a unique opportunity by which we can now start to replicate this broader model, bring the right partners and patients to the table, and advance and scale out the pursuit of drug development, especially in this critical phase when we're going from in vitro proof of concept to human proof of concept. So that's one vector. The other vector I'd also say is that if we're actually able to build a large collection of patients, scientists, and partners, and again, leveraging Web3, it can be a global entity that can scale effectively infinitely in terms of participation. There's a world where we could become the largest biopharma organization with a very large quantity of resources available to us. So imagine not only building out hundreds of drug programs, but even some of the core infrastructure that you alluded to earlier, our own analytics and insights from clinical data and preclinical um, data sets, the ability to actually even build out our own manufacturing facilities or um, you know, regulatory uh, writing infrastructure, et cetera. I think there becomes a really unique opportunity whereby this broader community can now start to allocate capital to alleviate some of the bottlenecks that exist in drug development today. Running uh, preclinical testing, doing uh, manufacturing, supply chain, reshoring that, decentralizing it, however you want to think about it. There's, I think, a really unique opportunity by which the supply chain can be modernized and community owned, but then also a lot of the business processes like paying out royalties or having an NDA can potentially be instantiated into smart contracts. So I know I've thrown, thrown a lot of sort of pieces out there, but I think it really comes at first looking at from the VELPT perspective, how we uh, leverage this common code base to then replicate it for sort of new disease areas and take advantage of hopefully the, the good governance that we've put in place here at Vibe. But then second, also start to think about this broader concept of community ownership, not just around the intellectual property, but also around the supply chain and infrastructure, but then also even business process and think about how the technology and communities can have a positive impact there as well. So that's, uh, that's kind of the, the next uh, five, six years of uh, hopefully what you and everyone else on the cap table has uh, signed up for. But uh, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. No, absolutely. And like, I guess the, the inverse of that question is like, how and in what version of this world this doesn't work? Like, what are the things mm -hmm. that you see as the biggest risks? Um, you've raised a small amount, all things considered, when it comes to biotech. I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, it's sort of a initial initial capital to prove out, as you say, a proof of concept here. But what are the biggest risks that you that you worry about here? Yeah, well, you know, I think the one thing I'd, I'd highlight here is that if you look at, say, the XBI, which is an ETF that represents a collection of biotech names from its peak in 2021 to its trough in 2022 has been down 60%, right? That broader- Sounds like, like uh, crypto volatility. <laughs> yeah. so it, it's so funny, right? Like, you know, as we have some of these interviews with the press, you know, they often, you know, sort of highlight, hey, you know, crypto, there's some interesting things going on. And I, and I simply revert them back to actually, I think it's a broader macro challenge where you see high potential industries, even like biotech, which has tremendous traditional capital invested in it, also going through its own uh, issues. And so I think I bring this example up in part because, um, unfortunately, disease doesn't care about interest rates, first off. But then second, um, that challenge of raising traditional public market uh, equity from, by public market equities um, translates into private market constraints in terms of capital. 
So we're seeing a lot of excitement around our model in part because we can bring a new source of capital, which is 10, 20, 30 times larger than what's out there right now in biotech to the fold. So that's first. But second, you know, I think to answer your question around what uh, are the challenges we're going to be facing potentially, I think one part of it is uh, to, your early, to our early discussion, ensuring that we're going after the right disease areas and the right candidate medicines that either get approved or get picked up by existing institutions to take the last mile, to pick up the baton. You know, many of the successful biotech companies that are out there actually did not develop their, their lead medicine or their most successful medicine themselves. You know, uh, Millennium's a great example, which was a 10 plus billion dollar outcome to Takeda a, a decade plus ago. Mm-hmm. In their case, they actually bought a company which had developed a, a drug called Velcade, which ended up becoming the high potential program that Takeda purchased Millennium for. Mm-hmm. So I think um, in our case, can we actually develop medicines uh, and choose make good decisions around um, which disease areas and which medicines we developed? Can we pass on the baton, whether it be from a commercial standpoint or from a partnership standpoint on those candidate medicines? And then most importantly, can we also build a vibrant and engaged community with the right types of stakeholders? You know, I think it's safe to say there's a lot of um, uh, different incentives that exist in the crypto industry amongst Web3 investors. And I think we want to make sure that we bring the right types of people to the table to make sure we make those good decisions for the long haul as well. So. Hopefully that yeah. gives you a little bit of a sense of some of the areas that we're looking yeah, to shore absolutely. up and what we want to be able to de-risk right in the coming 12 to 24 months. Uh, say that I have a family member, which I do. My, my middle sister is kind of has a rare disease. So, so say that there's a proposal that is set forth. I get really excited. I go out and like acquire this token or, or ask for delegations. Like I want to influence research. Like how does that, how does that work? Like how do you think about like the, the you're ascribing a value to a token um, and I just want to go out there, buy this token to get a proposal passed. Why not just skip all of that and somehow invest in and donate these proceeds to or invest in a venture fund? I'm, I'm like thinking more in the perspective of the user. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I think um, let's take that last comment real quick, right? Invest in a venture fund. There's only about a dozen or so sort of venture funds that are dedicated to biotech that are out there. And I think if you are someone who's passionate about a given disease area, uh, one, having access to that sort of uh, fund asset class, I think is very difficult. But then second, also- Meaning like you typically have to like be qualified and you need to invest, you know, at least a million dollars or whatever. So that- and, and ma- ma- Yeah, and many, and many more, right? And I think the challenge with, a, again, a centralized sort of set of, of investors is that, you know, their focus and, and what they sort of see as in vogue, right, is very different than perhaps what you do as a patient with- you know, a family member who's who's ill. So I think in our case, one, uh, it provides a lot more scalability of access and participation and say. And I think those communities can certainly participate uh, from a patient perspective. That's why we grant tokens for free to these patient advocacy groups. But what I'd hope is that you know the way that over time, as these medicines are successful, as capital starts to come back to the DAO, and as we start to build a relationship of doing what we say we're going to do that there will be greater demand for the participation in this overall community, whether it be from investors, from partners, from uh, charities, et cetera, which will continue to boost and increase the value of the token. The second I'd also highlight is that I think there's a unique opportunity whereby we could potentially leverage this technology to empower um, patients to not only have control and have unprecedented ownership over the drug development process, but also unprecedented ownership over their data. Right? I think one of the unique opportunities that crypto provides is the opportunity to be able to 
put your data on chain, make it accessible and monetizable in a variety of ways, which I think currently is done by a small subset of companies, but instead could actually be put back in the hands of patients by which they could too um, earn economics, um, leveraging the sort of tokenized type structure. So I think there's a lot of ways in which if we can build a community, ensure that this community of patients, scientists, and partners are making good decisions and able to invest in, in drug development programs that are successful, there's going to be a suite of other sort of capabilities and uses for that token that'll emerge that extend into data financing, as well mm -hmm. as um, replicating this model over time to other domains as well. Yeah. Last thing uh, I want to talk about is IP. That has been historically an area that has been challenging for healthcare. Uh, the, you know, a lot of it, is, you know, big pharma might do a lot of these clinical trials. They don't share that data. Um, they shelf the program. And a lot of the acquisitions in the space historically have been like, hey, like Royvan, for instance, is go out there and says, oh, actually, I think that I want to revisit this particular clinical trial that acquires that IP. And then turns out that there's a lot of promise there and, and it leads to drug development, which is, you know, a pretty interesting success story. Um, I am curious how you think about IP in this context, where there's a big community element, but also you need to be sensitive. Uh, I guess maybe the broader question is, does IP matter? And if so, how do you navigate and like kind of um, navigate that. that? Yeah, how do you handle that? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I'll, let me give you a sort of like two different facets of kind of this equation. I think the first is that uh, though the specific data might be held close to the vest by a given pharma company, chemical structure, you know, aspects of sort of clinical trial outcomes, et cetera, are actually sort of publicly um, discussed. And I think when you bring together a community that has a common mission, as by bio is, to finding every cure for every community, we hope we can bring more dedicated eyeballs with the right expertise to the table on this initial intellectual property in the first place. You alluded to it earlier, which is you know academic institutions, for instance, are, are part of the, the mix. But the expertise that academia has tends to be in the early stage science. If we can actually build a pool of not only scientists, but also drug development experts and patients, think about the uh, serendipity and the opportunity to glean those new insights that can emerge as people start to collaborate and coordinate within a DAO type of uh, structure. Mm -hmm. So that's like the first facet I want to highlight. But then the second facet, as we talked about our model, once a given set of proposals are approved, the capital associated with those um, uh, with those programs approved by the community is then goes into funding those drug development programs, which are housed within a given C corp. That C corp is what houses the actual intellectual property, does the drug development work, uh, etc. And the interesting thing about it is that when you also have economics from that C corp also held by the patient community, you have a new set of stakeholders now who have a say in what happens with that intellectual property, that data over time. They become way more aggressive about saying, if this medicine works, let's go find other disease areas that we can potentially impact positively, even if the economics aren't great, because as a community, we believe that we want to allocate our funds and work to helping others. That's one. The other is in the event that the, that the drug uh, you know, might not work, unfortunately, there's an opportunity to start, as you mentioned, open sourcing that data and sharing those learnings. Because again, the broader incentive here is to be able to bring as many medicines to market as safely and as quickly as possible, um, as opposed to sort of keeping things close to the vet best uh, in this circumstance. So I'll just sort of leave you with those sort of two facets of how IP could potentially play in this in this circumstance. And I think in terms of the constraints, a little bit less around the, the contracting and the technology and more about 
the incentives and the expectations of the individuals at the table and the capital that's being put to work here, which you know I believe to be fundamentally different than sort of more traditional sources that are out there in biotech. Yeah. Um, how many folks are on the team now full-time um, um, as kind of contributors? And, and for anyone listening out there, like uh, I think we all know like one or two degrees, unfortunately, of uh, this is a topic that, you know, hits home to most people and probably want to get involved. But what are the best ways? Where can people find out more about what you're doing? What are the major roles that you want to fill that you haven't filled yet? Um, um, so maybe we can just go from there. Yeah. So we'd love to have, hear from the broader community, whether it be from Web3, from biotech, from patient communities uh, at Vibe. And so you can go to vibebio.com. That's V-I-B-E-B-I-O.com. Or find us on Twitter at vibe underscore bio. Um, and I think in terms of uh, the team today, we're really fortunate to have about uh, a team, let's call it uh, around 10 or so folks across both our technology and therapeutics functions. Um, we've got a broader community now of probably uh, a few dozen individuals across patient advocacy groups, scientific teams, drug development teams, as well as um, uh, services partners. And so we're now working to uh, open up that community. So anyone who's excited about what we're trying to do in this intersection of biotech, healthcare, and Web3 would love uh, for you to come and join the community and, and, and share a little bit about yourself with us. Um, and in terms of uh, full-time opportunities, you know, we're, we're rapidly hiring. Obviously, you know, want to be able to put this capital to good work in order to um, help as many patients as possible and, and, and show what biotech and Web3 can do together. So whether you're a, a front-end engineer or a back-end Web3 uh, engineer, um, whether you're a designer, a community manager, a social media marketer, you know, we're looking for a broad swath of roles, especially from a Web3 and technology perspective, because that's our core and ethos and philosophy. But also, we will be growing on the scientific side as well. So, you know, folks who have actually been program leads at various uh, for various medicines, you know, we'll be hiring for you know CSOs and chief medical officers and heads of regulatory and things. You know, we're fortunate to have a few great folks in our sphere already in that space. But um, I really think this is a unique opportunity by which, whether you're uh, uh, a Rust developer or experience in Solidity, versus um, uh, uh, someone who's worked on antisense oligonucleotides, an opportunity for folks of all stripes to be able to come to the, to the table and be able to see how this novel technology in crypto and blockchain can be applied to uh, this really important societally beneficial domain of, of uh, biotech and healthcare. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've been public about this, but this is one of the areas that I, I feel like if it works, it's highly asymmetric and has it can have such a profound impact, positive impact, um, and and I think in many ways, like you're left wondering, like you know, the last twelve years we've designed very interesting incentives to build monetary systems and non-sovereign stores of value, i.e., Bitcoin, to settle value in transactions and and like trustless systems, which is pretty remarkable, and a lot of the experimentation. Uh, my background's in game theory is in, you know, it's a very adversarial system. And so you have to think about incentives and all the stakeholders and look, I mean, we haven't nailed it in many ways, but there's a lot of, a lot of um, experimentation going on around types of voting, like quadratic voting and types of funding models that are more sustainable and types of coordination mechanisms, both capital and information. 
And I think in many ways, it's like, well, why, like, well, healthcare struggles from a lot of incentive problems. Um, it, it's not just on the R&D side. It's really the healthcare system as a whole um, is, is pretty broken, at least in the U.S. And so, uh, you know, the, the idea that like, you know, the U.S. is, one, you know, one of the richest, if not the richest country in the world per capita and, um, you know, has the best institutions, the best research. Uh, but somehow, you know, life expectancy is going down. And so the health, you know, the costs are pretty high and people don't have access to, to cheap healthcare. And so it's kind of perplexing to me. That's an area that is going to, we have the, I think if this works, it probably set the, uh, a path forward to exploring other areas in the healthcare system, not just R and D to apply these incentives and kind of, you know, fix the system in many ways. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that, uh, but I think that the vision or the opportunity to apply a lot of these crypto modalities, incentives, and mechanisms is, is there to kind of um, the potential is there. It's going to be long-term but and highly ambitious, but I think it's possible. I think you're, you're 100% right. You know, crypto, I think, has opened up two interesting uh, areas of innovation. One is obviously on the technology side. But I think the other that might be less discussed, but you alluded to, is the opportunity to re-engineer not just software and databases and, and whatnot, but also incentives. And I think when you think about that fundamental aspect of re-engineering incentives, it opens up, I think, a lot of opportunities to start taking this technology and philosophy and mindset into legacy institutions that aren't necessarily serving uh, a large portion of the, their intended market. And so I think uh, in the context of biotech, our hope here is to be able to show what this technology and set of incentives can be done specifically within our domain, but then hopefully inspire other industry-focused DAOs, what we call industry DAOs, right, to emerge that can start to think about their own incentive structure, their own ecosystem of partners, their own um, uh, types of capital and uses of them uh, to start solving other broader problems. And I think that's going to be a really impactful um, outcome, hopefully, of the, of the next uh, one to two years, which is those individuals who start to get fed up with their existing uh, service providers or, or legacy institutions can now start to take advantage of these open, permissionless tools uh, to go start something themselves. And so uh, we hope just to be able to be an inspiration for that uh, uh, broadly, but also hopefully do some good in the rare disease and biotech world. That's amazing. I'm super happy that we got a chance to chat. I don't know if there's anything else as we kind of come to an end here that you want to impress upon our listeners. Um, uh, any parting thoughts? Uh, but otherwise, I mean, I really kind of enjoyed this discussion. You know how I feel about what you're doing. I think, uh, you know, it's it's one of the projects that I'm most passionate about for obvious reasons. But uh, I'm curious, uh, anything else you want to cover uh, while we have you here? You know, uh, just a, a note of thanks to you for both being a, a great vocal advocate for us as well as um, the broader community for, for the time here today. I, you know, I think I'll just leave you with the thought that you know, I think for the first time, Vibe Bio is uh, creating a community of patients, scientists, and partners to help identify and vet potential medicines in the rare disease space and fund them using cryptocurrency token sales. We're really excited now to be able to put patients in the driver's seat of drug development, not profits and politics, such that any patient with a life-altering disease can have a community 
as well as uh, the power to pursue a cure. Incredible. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy, especially now that you're public and I can't imagine the inbounds that you're getting. Uh, but listeners, you know, if this if this hits close to home, uh, you know where to, to find a loc, definitely reach out. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity there and, and or to us and we can direct you in the right in the right way. Uh, but otherwise, thanks everyone for listening. Loke, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Talk soon.